Well, our Bible reading this morning is from the book of Genesis. You can find it on page 5, very easy to find right at the beginning. It's chapter 3, and we're going to read the first 20 verses of chapter 3. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat from the trees in the the fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The snake deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the snake, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife, and ate fruit from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. I want it like it was back then. I want to be in Eden. So I understand the, uh, the sentiment because, you know, the message of uh, Genesis chapter 3 is that the world was a paradise. 
There was no sickness, no death, no sadness, no distress, no violence, no conflict. But the truth that comes from Genesis chapter 3 is that we have made a wreck of the world that we have been given and we have made a wreck of our lives. Actually, probably in some form or another, you won't find anybody on the planet that entirely disagrees with that. But here's the wonderful thing. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that God comes into the wreckage. God comes into the bomb site. And instead of coming in and saying, is this what you've done with what I've given you? Instead of recriminations, God comes into the bomb site searching. Searching, saying, where are you? Where are you? And here in Genesis 3, we find God asking three questions. In this text that we've got today, God is asking three questions. And what's wonderful about these three questions that God is asking is the reason that he's asking them. I mean, he's not asking them because he actually is short of information, And he needs to know the answer. Of course, he already knows the answer to the questions. He's asking them for a specific reason. He's asking them because God is wonderful counsellor. And this is a basic counselling ploy, that you ask the right questions until people come up with the answers for themselves, and in so doing, they're healed, they're restored by discovering for themselves the right answers to the questions that are being asked. And this is what God's doing. He's playing wonderful counsellor here. And he asks these three questions. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? And have you eaten from the tree that I expressly told you not to eat from? And today I want to look with you at one question. I want to look at the middle question. Because if you understand that question, if you understand the meaning of the question, and if you understand the answer to that question, then I submit to you that you will understand the entire meaning of the Bible, you will understand our psychological and our social history of the world, and you'll better understand the missing piece of the puzzle, which is you. So, the question that we're going to ask and we're going to look at today is, who told you that you were naked? And as you approach this question that is here in this text, you'll find that the the text gives three very important aspects to that question. First of all, it gives us the problem of nakedness. Secondly, it gives us the human solution, or actually the human solutions to nakedness. And then, most importantly, it gives us the divine solution to nakedness. So you've got the problem, you've got the uh, human attempt at answering that problem, and you've got God's answer to the problem. So here's the first thing, the problem of nakedness. The reason that God comes along and asks Adam uh, this question is because Adam has already made an excuse. God walks into the garden for his normal chat at the end of the day, in the cool of the day, and on this particular occasion, Adam hides away and God says, where are you? And Adam says, well, uh, I'm behind a tree. I'm cowering behind a tree. Um, and of course, Adam immediately has to go on and now explain why he's running away from God. Actually, it's a very good point because one day we're all going to have to stand and explain why we're running away from God. But suffice to say, at this point, it's Adam who's cowering behind the tree running away. And Adam says, look, the reason I'm trying to avoid you, Lord, is because I'm naked. 
Now, God immediately says, who told you that you were naked? Because God's saying here to Adam, look Adam, you've always been naked. What kind of answer is that? At the end of chapter 2 in Genesis, we're told that the man and the woman were naked and not ashamed. So God looks at Adam Adam and says, Adam, you're really not giving me a very good answer here. There must be more to it because you've always been without clothes. So who told you that you were naked? Adam, what's happened? What's changed? Who's messed with you? Um, Something has gone on here. That's what God is asking. And you see, what's happened is not that Adam no longer has clothes, because we know he never had any clothes. And when in verse 7 it says, "Then um, then the eyes of both of them were opened, it doesn't mean that they were physically blind and then suddenly they got recovery of their sight and they looked down and went, oh my gosh, I'm not wearing any clothes. That, of course, can't have happened. So what it is telling us is that obviously there's suddenly a new consciousness of their nakedness. There's a new awareness of their nakedness. And God is saying to Adam, where did that consciousness come from? Where's that awareness suddenly come from? What has changed, Adam? Why is nakedness now something that you can't stand? See, this is important because nakedness originally meant to be known. Before Adam and Eve rebelled against God, before Adam and Eve decided to be their own masters, they had had no problem whatsoever with radical vulnerability. Now, suddenly, being vulnerable, being seen by somebody, being observed being visible, being open, being uncovered, it's really traumatic for them. You see, in the Bible, nakedness originally meant to be so known that you're vulnerable. It's more than just the clothes bit. It's far more than that. Let me give you an example. If you're walking down the street with somebody and suddenly hear a shot ring out, a gun's fired, and your friend says to you, quick, take cover! You will do it. You will leap for cover. Why will you leap for cover? Because very quickly what's gone through your mind is I can be seen by somebody that I can't see and I'm vulnerable here. So the natural thing is I've got to cover up. And of course nakedness is that kind of vulnerability that makes you want to cover up. Not just the vulnerability that comes when you don't have any clothes on but any kind of vulnerability and that drive to cover up when you feel vulnerable. Let me give you another example. Maybe this is an even better example. If you were out on a sunny August day here in Frinton, on the beach, in your swimming costume, and everybody was around you in their swimming costumes, you'd feel very happy. But if you turned up at a dinner party where everybody's dressed in, uh, in formal attire, in dinner suits, and you had your swimming costume on, you wouldn't feel so great. Well, I'm betting you wouldn't feel so great. You would feel really vulnerable. Why? It's the same swimming costume that you were quite happy wearing on the beach. The truth is that now they can see far more of you than you can see of them, and you don't like it. It makes us feel vulnerable. You see, for people to see or know too much about us is really at the heart of this problem. We feel very, very vulnerable when people know or see too much. 
And you see, what the Bible is telling us here, at the very heart of this, is the fact that mankind rebelled, Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin entered the world, and from there on, we feel that we can only be loved if we're not known. Because we disobeyed God, the vulnerability became painful. Nakedness is actually a sense of being unacceptable. For example, have you ever found yourself, you don't have to admit this by the way, I know it's Lent, but you don't have to admit this. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you've been talking to somebody, or I don't know, you've been writing a letter or an email to somebody, or you've been talking on the phone to somebody, and you've been saying something a bit naughty, a bit nasty about somebody else, and suddenly you realise they've seen it or you've been overheard? You ever had that scenario? And... At that moment where you realise that somebody's heard you saying these things, you feel naked. Why? Because you suddenly realise that your unacceptability, your flawedness, your meanness has been seen or heard by someone that you really didn't want to see it. And you feel naked. See, nakedness in the Bible is being vulnerable. It's being unable to control people's knowledge about your flaws, about your weaknesses, about your unacceptability. And that's exactly the reason that all of us are afraid of being exposed. Uh, We were originally created in Eden, in that paradise, in God's presence. We were created uh, to be known and to be loved. Now we firmly believe that those two things will never ever go together. We can never be loved if we're fully known. We believe that uh, no one will love us if they see just how anxious we are, just how upset we are, just how depressed we are, just how unhappy we are, just how disappointed we are, just how weak we are. If people see that, they'll never love us. You know, Bob Dylan, son, wrote... If my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine. Actually, didn't. He went, if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine. <laughs> but it's the it's a right thought, isn't it? That's how we think. If, if people can see what I'm really thinking, how will they ever like me, let alone love me? See, as a result, Genesis chapter 3 answers a question that I don't think anybody else in the whole of human history has ever been able to fully explain. And it's this. Why is it that we so desperately need to control what other people see of us? Well, the answer is right here in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, it goes on to show us something else. Why is it that we so desperately need to be in control of what we see of ourselves? Because the truth is, we don't really like the reality. We're even hiding from ourselves. Genesis 3 tells us why. We feel naked. We have to control what people see. And of course, that creates another problem. Every one of us knows that there are really two eyes out there. And those eyes are pure. And they're true. And they're totally honest. And they're completely unbiased. And they're incorrigibly just. And not one of us will be able to stand before those two eyes. But you know this, if there aren't two eyes out there that are like that, then there is no hope for this world. Evil will triumph. 
If there's not an unseen seer, if there's not a judge of all the earth, if those two eyes are not out there, then what hope is there for this world? But if there are two eyes out there like that, then what hope is there for us? What hope is there for me and for you? It says in the book of Hebrews, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Do you know what happened to Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve didn't lose their physical clothes. They never had their physical clothes in the first place. But they lost something. They lost their righteousness. They lost their acceptability. They lost the glory of being created in the image of God. They lost their purity. And that was the one thing, the one thing that enabled them to stand before any eyes without any sense of fear. That's why they weren't defensive. That's why they were happy. That's why... Being vulnerable was good. They could be known. But now they've lost something. They've lost their real clothing. They've lost their purity. They've lost their acceptability. They feel inadequate. They feel small. And they can't stand to be known. And there's a sense of being naked. Yes, of being very ashamed. And it all comes from that human decision that we want to be our own masters. It's what we call the fall. Human rebellion. Sin coming into the world. And that is the problem of nakedness. But I want to look with you for a moment at the human solution, or actually human solutions, I think it is, to to nakedness. Because the second thing that this text tells us is not only do we have this problem of nakedness, but human beings are unbelievably creative when it comes for devising coverings for that nakedness. If you want to understand human behaviour, if you want to understand psychological history, social history, if you want to understand yourself, then you have to realise that at the root of all of these things is a desire in you to cover up. To cover up your nakedness. To cover up the fact that you don't feel acceptable. To cover up the flaws that you don't want other people to see. And you honestly think, deep down in there, you think the only way I will ever be loved is if I can cover up, if I can hide. And you see it right here in this text. You know... Adam and Eve, in the space of a couple of verses, that's in the space of a couple of minutes, there are at least three kinds of cover-up going on. Uh, First of all, they hide from one another. The text tells us they sowed fig leaves, uh, they put fig leaves over themselves so they can hide from each other's eyes. Then there's the hiding in the trees, that's so they can hide from God's eyes. And then thirdly, they make this whole list of excuses. God comes along and says, what's happened? Adam says, she made me do it. And Eve goes, the serpent made me do it. And you see, immediately they're actually trying to cover the truth from themselves. So they cover up from one another, they cover up from God and they're covering up even from their own eyes. And you know, this is what scripture is telling us. We do have this innate, desperate need to control what other people think. Because you cannot be naked and unashamed. You cannot be known and loved. 
And that's what we believe. You see it, actually, you can see it in the mundane, almost ludicrous aspects of life. Let me give you an example. Imagine that uh, somebody who's really interested in you asks you out on a date, okay? Most, I submit, humbly submit, that most of the preparations that will go into this date will involve quite a bit of covering up. First of all, they say to you, oh, I'll come and pick you up at your house. And you know your house is a wreck. And you do not want them to see how undisciplined your life is. And so you start the cover-up. You go, oh, no, 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 don't come and meet me at my house. I'll tell you what, let's meet at Cafe 19. That'll get them away from the house. Or you can't shake them off. They insist on coming to the house. And so you have the first really deep clean that you've performed in seven years. I've got to get this place sorted out. They can't possibly see it like this. And then, of course... um, as you prepare for the evening, there will be a number of other cover-ups. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. The same thing's going on. The cover-ups are going on. You know, you want to cover up certain physical idiosyncrasies. So, you know, dressing becomes very, very important. You want to look thinner. You want to look fuller. You want to look taller. You want to look shorter. Uh, whatever it is, you don't want to look like you really are. So the cover-ups start to go on. And then, of course, when you get out on the date, you make sure that the conversation only strays into those areas where you feel competent I mean God forbid that they should find out how poorly read we are so we make sure the conversation stays where we sound reasonably competent and uh, we don't want to be caught out and you know why we're doing that? We're doing that with other people because we're all alike, the truth is we want to know about other people but we don't want them to know too much about us And actually, those are the silly things in life. But, you know, actually, this same principle tracks us through the really important things in life as well, the things that we really want. Why is it that some of you work so hard? Why is it that we don't feel worthwhile, that we can't even look ourselves in the face unless we've worked ourselves to to exhaustion? Why is it that some of you have to help the world You know, anybody's in trouble, you're there, to the rescue. Why is it that you can't disappoint anybody? You can never turn anybody down, you can never say no, even when you know it's ludicrous to say yes, uh, you still say yes. Why is it that you're always helping, always serving, always doing for people, until you're at the point of nervous exhaustion? Why is it that some of you are extremely private people, no one will ever see you bleed? Why that tough exterior? Let me keep going here. Why is it that some of you, the thing that dominates your life is anger, is resentment over certain groups or certain individuals that have ruined your life? That's the way you think about it. You know, I'm in the situation I'm in because of what they've done to them. It's my mother's fault. It's my father's fault. It's that person's fault. It's that group's fault. Why is that? Why the bitterness? Why the anger? Why is it that some people have to be, have to be, so ultimately attractive to the opposite sex? Nobody, oh, sorry, you're nobody till somebody loves you, the song said. And that's what they believe. You're nobody till somebody loves you. Why is it that, that some are such perfectionists? i tell you the reasons for all of this stuff. The work, the anger, the makeup, the helping... They're fig leaves. The anger, the makeup, the work, the privacy, the tough exterior, it's all fig leaves. I have to do something to hide my real self and to, to, to cover this sense of impurity that I have. 
It doesn't just stop there. Why are so many religious people unpleasant? Why are they so defensive? Why are they so condescending and smug? Why are they so hostile? Why do they need to feel feel the need to get the enemy? I mean, if you question their beliefs or you question their conduct, they'll scratch your eyes out. Why? I'll tell you why. Because they're using religion as a fig leaf. They're using religion as a desperate way of convincing themselves, I'm all right. I'm covering this up with the fig leaf of religion. But you know, you can do exactly, and you find people do this, you can do exactly the same thing with irreligion. Uh, A minister once told me this story. He was speaking to a group of um, university students. And uh, after he'd spoken to this group, uh, a young woman stayed behind and she basically came up to him and said to him, you know, I think your views are really narrow-minded and I think they're really old-fashioned and uh, I think it's rubbish and I don't think people believe that stuff anymore and I certainly don't believe that stuff anymore. And so he thought, okay, well, you know, I'd better talk to her. So he started to talk to her and he actually found out from chatting to her that she'd been brought up in a really strong Christian home uh, with a really vibrant faith And uh, this was her first year at university and he found out that she'd even come to university with a Bible and with her faith intact. And so he started to probe a bit more and he said to her, when did you come to this opinion that you couldn't believe this stuff anymore? And she'd sort of said, I don't know, it was like the previous autumn. This was all in her first year at university. And uh, very sort of gently he said, was there anything that happened Any big change you went through. And of course, very reluctantly, what came out was that in the autumn, she'd moved in with her boyfriend and she'd begun to live in a way that went against all the teaching, all the Christian teaching and all of her family's values that she'd come to university with. And suddenly the minister realised why none of this made sense to her anymore. She could no longer stand the gaze of God. And so she started to use the fig leaf of irreligion. I don't believe that anymore. Her irreligion was just as much a bunch of fig leaves to patch up her sense of inadequacy as, and to get out from under the gaze of God as any of the terribly religious people, any of the people that are working too hard or whatever we're doing to cover up. What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve? Stand up for yourself. Create your own reality. If you want to do it, do it. Don't be an actor in someone else's play. Write your own play. Sing your own song. Be your own person. Don't be afraid of anything. Live in authentic freedom. And so Adam and Eve did. And then they found how deeply vulnerable and ashamed they felt. And they had to cover up. And we've been doing the same ever since. We say we don't believe in God, we say we don't believe in hell, we don't believe in judgment, we say I work very hard, I've accomplished this, I'm a very religious person. And inside all the time there's a voice that says, you fool, you fool, you're guilty. And we hear that voice and what do we do? We blame it, we blame it on complexes, we blame it on stress, we blame it on our parents, we try to secularise it and we can't get rid of it. It's there. We have this sense of loss. And we have it because it's the unseen seer. No matter how hard we work, no matter how much we help people, no matter how religious we get or irreligious we get, we can't stop it. We can't cover it up. 
no matter how much we try to move away from it, no matter how sceptical we become or how much we disbelieve, we can't cover it up. We know that there are two pure eyes watching. We know that the reality is that one day that facade that we're creating is going to slip. Midnight is coming, Cinderella. And we know it. But there is a divine solution to nakedness. You can't cover yourself. We desperately need somebody to cover us. And we have a God who says, I and I alone will cover your inadequacy and your nakedness. God says, I am the God who covers your sins. It goes all the way through scripture. Do you remember in the, in the book of Hosea, where Hosea marries his wife Goma, and uh, Goma's unfaithful to him, and uh, in the end she sells herself into slavery to try and pay off her debts. And anyway, there God says to her, you've got to go and redeem her. And she's there up on the slave auction block, and she's naked, and she's ashamed, and, and Hosea buys her back at great cost, in spite of what she's done to him. He covers her up, and he gives her her dignity back. And then the Lord says, that is how I will treat you. And if you look at Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a place where God says, let me tell you what I'm like, and let me tell you what you're like. You're like a little baby girl thrown out into the field, naked and still kicking in your own blood. You know, this is a shocking, shocking picture, image that's being created here, because then, and to this very day, in too many places in the world, baby girls are still either killed or thrown out onto the rubbish heap because they're just not wanted. So this is a very, very real image, then and now, that God is using to speak to us. And and he goes on in Ezekiel chapter 67, he says, On the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you wrapped in cloths. You were thrown out (coughs) into the open field, for on the day that you were born, you were despised. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood, and as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, Live. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. That is the kind of God I am. And in Isaiah 61, the prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. How does God do that? Well, here is God saying to Adam and Eve, Get out from behind that tree. The only way you'll get over your fear, the only way you'll get over the trauma that has happened to your soul, the only way that you'll ever be happy again is if you're naked and unashamed. Come out from behind that tree. Open up. Admit it to me. You know, that's how redemption happens. It happens in admitting to God that which he already knows. And he begins to redeem us. Come out and admit what you've done. Come to me and I will clothe you, says the Lord. I will cover your sin. You will be naked and not ashamed. You know how it's done? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4. He's talking about what it means to receive Christ as Saviour and what it means to have Christ as Saviour. And he says, Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. First of all, it tells us that when you come to God through Jesus, he covers your sin, which means the only eyes that matter, God's eyes, don't see the sin. And the last verse of the chapter says, God, 
threw Adam and Eve out of the garden so that they couldn't reach the tree of eternal life. And there's an angel, there's an archangel put there, a cherubim put there before the tree with a flaming sword. And you see, the only way back to the tree of life now is under that sword. Anybody who will lead you back to the tree of life, who will give you eternal life, is going to have to go under the sword. Why? Because the penalty for disobedience, which is what has happened with Adam and Eve, is to be cut off. And so they're thrown out, they're cut off. And the only way back now is to go under that sword. But the Bible tells us that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was cut off for us, was cut off from the land of the living. He went under the sword when he died upon Calvary's cross. He paid the price that we should have paid. We were the ones that were cast out of the garden. We were the ones that should have gone under the sword. He went under the sword for us. Our sins are covered in God's sight because Jesus went under the sword. Do you see that today you can be a Christian entirely because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. Do you see that you can be completely loved, completely accepted because of what Jesus did? Do you see that? Because if you see that, then say yes to him today or say yes to him again today as we enter this period of Lent. If you see that you can be loved and totally accepted because of what Jesus has done and only because of that. You know, I hope, I pray that some of you today will see that the reason that you're unhappy, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian or whether you don't know what the heck you are, I hope that you will see today that the reason that you are unhappy is because your problems have arisen because you're not letting God cover you. Stop trying to cover yourself. Give up with the fig leaves. He is the only one who can do it. I tell you this, if you get to the last day, if you get to judgment day, and you don't have Christ covering you, all the other coverings are going to fall to pieces. It will be midnight, Cinderella. What are we going to do? Every one of us wants to be known. Every one of us wants to be loved. We want to be naked and unashamed. But because of our sin, we're sure that the only way that we can ever be loved is if we cover up, if we hide, if we don't let anybody see what really we're like. We don't want to admit anything. What does that mean? We don't want to repent. God knows we don't want it. But in love, he says, come out from behind that tree. Drop those pitiful fig leaves. And so I say to you this morning, hear what the Lord is saying. Stand naked before him and say, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. It's the most frightening thing that a human being can do. But when you're naked before God, he will clothe you. He will wrap you in a robe of righteousness. His righteousness. This morning, God is saying, come out from behind that tree.
Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that as we enter Lent and as we think about the glory of redemption, the redemption that we receive in Jesus Christ as Saviour, we thank you that admitting the truth to you, a truth you already know about us anyway, is part of how you redeem, how you restore, how you save. So help us, Lord, to come out from behind that tree. Help us, Lord, to drop our pitiful fig leaves. Help us to stand naked before you and say, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Help us, Lord. Amen.